All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. Very fitting. Let's talk about an oppressive and evil government that's killing its people. That's a joke. Uh, or is it a joke? I'll let you decide that. Revelation chapter 12 is where we are. <clears throat> Revelation 12, we're going to start in verse 1. Hopefully, in fact, I pretty much expect we'll do the whole chapter tonight and hopefully go into a little bit of chapter 13 as well. But this is a fun chapter. It is, um, it is the most that we've gotten so far, maybe since chapter 4, maybe, uh, that is just over, overladen with symbolic imagery and with fantastical visual. We've had a lot of that, of course, but a lot of it also has been steeped in, you know, the actions and the doings of angels. And we have enough familiarity with that going back through previous books that we can kind of have a frame of reference for what that might look like. But some of this stuff is just beyond the bizarre. Uh, and that's what you're going to get when you get into chapter 12. So I won't say anything else by way of introduction. We'll just dive into it and we'll see what we see. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1, John writes, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. There's a lot of material that's going to be coming up in the next few chapters that on the surface level is kind of a rehash of a lot of the things that we've already covered in terms of the point and the, uh, the, the lesson to take out of it, the application to draw. It's just presented to us in more of a fanciful way, uh, as you see here. Um, we have previously leading up to this chapter, John, uh, remember, went to the giant angel who was one foot was on the land, one foot was on the sea, and he took from him the little scroll and he consumed the scroll and it was sweet going in, it was bitter going down, that sort of thing. Uh, but the ultimate message behind it is victory, that's the sweet part of it, tempered with a lot of frustration and heartache and death, and that's the bitter part of it, that's the bitter sweetness of the message of salvation, which is if you hang on and you're faithful, in the end you'll be saved. But to get there requires a lot of endurance and you'll suffer a lot of pain and suffering and loss to those around you along the way. And what we see here, especially in chapter 12, is kind of a, uh, an illustration of what that looks like, that struggle, that battle, as depicted for us as a battle. Because what better book to demonstrate that than a book that can go to that kind of fanciful extreme and use that kind of imagery because this is as we've said many times in this class revelation is like watching a play the curtains pull back and the actors perform and how here here we're seeing something very similar now you can take this chapter 12 and break it into two sections basically the first deals with satan fighting against uh, the seed of christ i'll put it that way that's the first six verses from verse 7 through 12 is satan fighting against um, the the church of christ uh, that how there's a distinction between them, we'll see as we go through this. But the, the center stage of this, the, the key actor in the play at this scene, um, is the devil himself. And m having said that, much of what you can say about the devil, you can apply to Rome, who's the specific uh, evil government at the time of Revelation, and much of what you would naturally immediately say, oh, this is Rome, you could back it up and you could say, well, this is in general the devil. Because as this book or this chapter will make very clear, Rome is really nothing more than just the instrument of, of violence the devil wields against the world and specifically the church of Jesus Christ. But first of all, it's not the devil that John sees here at the beginning of this vision. He's kind of the center character in this chapter, but he's not the first thing we meet in, in verse 1. The first thing we meet is something wondrous and something holy. In fact, it's specifically used the word in my Bible, wonder. I saw, John says, a great wonder in heaven. I saw a great spectacle. I saw a great thing that made me drop my jaw. 
is what the word means. Something that just took my breath away. Now, I don't know the particulars. I have a hunch based on something in chapter 13 that what John is doing here is he is, obviously he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he steps out, in my, in my mind, as I interpret it, he steps out at night and he looks up at the stars and he is permitted by inspiration to see this wondrous sight in the starry host above him. This constellation comes to life, essentially. And it is a constellation of a woman. And there are three peculiarities given about this woman. And oh, I could try to draw her, but you know, it's going to be... I hear the chuckles already. It's going to be you know, uh, inadequate. But let's just let's have a little fun. All right? Every woman has a head. And we'll just give her one of these. She looks like Aunt Jemima, but that's all right. Looks like she'd be on the top of a pancake bottle. But that's okay. I drew her like this on purpose because as we'll learn soon, she's with child, so she's allowed to have a little bit of a belly. All right? Now, there's three specific things we learn about her. First, she is clothed. First thing it says, she's clothed with the sun. So let's put that like this. Clothed with the sun. Second thing, what is at her feet? What does it say? Yes, the moon is at her feet, which we'll illustrate like that. All right? Looks like an angel inside a ball, but that's the moon, we'll say. The moon is at her feet, and the third is, oh yes, what does it say? Twelve. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. All right. She has a crown of twelve stars. Now that third one, maybe, if you're following along with Revelation and the way it uses numbers and grabs your attention with certain numerical values, twelve, that's a very Christian kind of number. It's a very biblical number, not just Christian. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve sons of Abraham, twelve apostles of Jesus Christ. Here is a person crowned, a royal term, with twelve stars. All right? But also clothed with the majesty of the sunlight, and standing upon at her feet, this woman's feet, is the moon. Now, one thing I would caution us against doing, not to do, is to try and pick out these three particular elements. Well, what does the moon necessarily represent? Or what does the sunlight represent? Or what does the, the crown of stars represent? You could do that and you might, you might hit the bullseye. You might land on what it actually means, what John meant and what the Spirit meant when he inspired it. But I would say, look at the totality of it. What are those three things? Here is a person that is completely wrapped in the sun, the moon, and the stars. A biblical term to an audience that would know biblical terms, a biblical term for creation. So the Bible frequently talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars, the sun, moon, and stars to talk about all of God's creation. So here is a person that is completely ensconced in creation completely surrounded by all of God's creation. So who is this person? The first thing that people do as they go through this, and we didn't read the chapter, and then we didn't like read it in its totality, we just read the first verse, so we're going to keep reading in a second. As we go through this, your mind, I, I bet you, and I'm going to poison you, I'm going to inject that thought in your mind, so maybe you weren't, but you're probably going to now, is think of Mary. You're probably going to think of Mary. Here's a woman with child, and she gives birth to the child, and this evil red dragon, the devil, spoiler alert, goes after the child. Oh, that's Mary gives birth to Jesus, and the devil attacks Jesus. But that is way too surface level for Revelation. That is, if you remember last week, that is only hitting the first point. That's the obvious thing John wants you to connect. But from there, you have to make application. Don't confuse understanding with application. Know what it is, and then know why it is. So, yeah, I think you're supposed to draw the obvious connection to Mary and Jesus and the devil. But then from that, draw your connection, I think, to Jesus, his church, and Rome. I think 
that you're supposed to see this and assume this is Mary giving birth to Jesus, and I haven't drawn the dragon yet. Get ready for that. The dragon is the devil. Mary has, gives birth to Jesus, and the devil goes after Jesus. The temptation in the wilderness or the cross, what have you. You can put your own idea there. But that's just the first. From there, you draw the connection. What am I supposed to think about that? What is he trying to teach me with that? I think obvious connection. It is this. Jesus is a type of Mary giving birth to the church who is attacked by Rome. Just like Mary gave birth to Jesus who was attacked by the devil. And what John will do throughout this chapter is use the story, so-called, the account, the, the history, of Mary, the child Jesus, and the devil going after them to teach us how Jesus gave us his church and the devil goes after the church through the Roman Empire. And how that, that cycle kind of repeats. See, it's not enough for us just to conclude from this text, oh, I'm reading this and it's very clearly talking about Yes, the devil went after Mary and baby Jesus. So what? We already know that. We've already read Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament. We're reading the last book in the New Testament. And all the people reading the book of Revelation, even though they don't have it bound in leather, they've all read Matthew. They know the story. So what does that do for them? How does that help them? They need the application. And the application is, just like the devil went after Mary and baby Jesus, so too does Rome go after the church of Jesus Christ. And just like the devil, later in this chapter, is smacked down by the heavenly powers, so too will Rome be smacked down by heavenly powers. That's the idea of Revelation chapter 12, as I see it. I think we do a disservice to it by just cutting it off halfway and saying, oh, this is just a retelling of Matthew chapters 1 through 4. I've already read Matthew 1 through 4. That's nothing new to me. I need, I need the, the point as I'm going through this persecution in Ephesus and Philadelphia and so forth. Look at verse 2. About this woman, we read these words. She being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. So she's not just pregnant with the child. She's about to give birth to the child. In fact, she is giving birth. It says travailing in birth. She is giving birth to this child and pained to be delivered. So this is a hard delivery. Verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head i want to first draw your attention because i know it's easy fixated on the description of this dragon let's not miss the very beginning of this verse because it will help us understand something a little bit later a little bit later we're going to get and there was a war in heaven and michael and the ark and the angels fought against the the red dragon and everybody loves to talk about that and they, they visualize tolkien swords and battles and things with dragons Hold on to your horses, okay? It's, it's not that dramatic. Connect that, when we get there, to what we're reading right here. The beginning of this verse is important because the beginning of this verse is, there appeared another wonder in heaven. The beginning of this chapter, John says, I looked up into the night sky and I saw a constellation come to life of a woman travailing in birth, clothed in the sun, moon, and stars. He looked up into the night sky. He looked up into the heavens he looked up into the night sky and in the night sky he sees this constellation come to life a woman and now in this verse there is another spectacle in heaven not heaven the throne of god heaven the heavens the sky the night sky in this case where the stars sparkle and twinkle and he sees in the stars yet another constellation this one of a red dragon now when somebody says dragon what 
Come on, man. When somebody says dragon, what do you think of? Huh? Say it again. Fire? Oh, yeah. But I mean, like, visual. Not what a dragon does. That's true, though. When you think, in my opinion, there, okay, not in my opinion. It's just a fact. There are three different kinds of dragons. There is an American dragon, and I'm not even going to, it doesn't even matter. There's an American dragon, which you can all visualize, or you can Google on your own time. That it's, it's like um, a, a snake-like creature with bat wings, and it's kind of like a bat in that its hand is its wings, right? You've seen a bat, and it has these big, long fingers and the wings. That's the American version of the dragon. Then there's the European version of the dragon, which is like your classic Arthurian dragon. Like if you see the, the flag of Wales, they have that kind of dragon on it. Uh, that's your classic dragon. It looks kind of like a dinosaur, like a uh, brontosaurus kind of dinosaur. Not exactly, but we're just spitballing here. With little bitty wings, you know, flapping on its back, which do absolutely nothing for it, but just look nice, I guess. So that's your, that's your European-style dragon. That's what's called the Western-style dragon. The more Western American version came much later. So your classical Western dragon, dinosaur with little bitty wings. The traditional oldest version of dragon, the Greek word dracon, where we get the word dragon, is the Asian style. If you've ever seen a Chinese parade, they have the people who are inside it, you know, and it just looks like a serpent kind of thing. It's, it just looks like, well, let's just, okay. I mean, and it's got like, you know, it just, except it's not just a serpent. It's got whiskers, you know. Um, that's the whisker on the other side coming down. So it's, it's got... It's got feet, and sometimes it's got like, you know, little scales and things like that. You know, we'll have a little fun with it. Um, and it does spit fire, Galen, but the look of it is what's important here. The difference between a Chinese and a Japanese version is just the number of fingers. One has four, one has five. Everything else is basically the Asian-style dragon, which is just this serpentine creature that has these clawed hands, and it, it, it walks and it moves around, and it's just it's on its belly doing its thing. So that's your, that's your Asian dragon. That's the kind of dragon that if John uses the word dracon, he'd be thinking of. Now you think, well, John, he's never read a fantasy book. Why is he saying that word? Well, that's a whole 20-minute YouTube video I'm not going to give you right now. But suffice to say, there's very good reason why he would have the word dragon in mind and think of this thing right here, which we think of as the Asian dragon. The point is, he looks up in the constellation and he sees this red creature, but he's not just seeing this traditional Asian-style dragon, because this one has multiple heads and other descriptions apt to Revelation. Notice the description of it. There's this great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon its heads. Seven heads. Seven is not a divine number. As we've said before, seven is not a number to mean God or holiness. Seven means complete throughout this book. So this is a dragon with seven heads. Um, a head in Revelation, authority. A figurehead, a top, the, the head of a company in this case, or in this case, the head of evil. So a, a complete and total authority. Over what does it have authority? Well, as you'll see in this chapter, he's going to exercise his authority to attack the world. This is a being with total authority over the world. Who is the God, little g, of this world? Who is the prince of darkness over the earth? That is the devil who we're talking about, which will be made clear very soon. Paul calls the devil the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So he has seven heads, seven representations of complete authority over his domain, in this case the world. He also has horns, but not seven horns. Horns symbolize power. What can he do? Authority over whom does he do what he do? Or what he does. Over whom does he exercise his power? But the horns themselves are his limits of power. He doesn't have seven horns. He has ten horns. Now, we 
arithmetic, uh, arithmetical people, we hear 10 and we think, well, that's three more than seven. So he's got even more. No, no, you don't do numbers like that in Revelation. In Revelation, seven means complete. In Revelation, 10 means incomplete. You'll have tribulation 10 days. You won't be tried forever, but you'll be tried for a difficult period of time. So he has incomplete power. He has total authority, but he can't do everything he wants to do. The devil is bound on a leash, as you see in the book of Revelation. Or not Revelation, Job, at the beginning of Job. I want to do this to Job, and God has to give him permission. Well, now I want to do this, and God has to let the leash a little bit more loose. So the devil has total domain, but he is limiting the power that he exercises. Seven heads, ten horns. Oh, and what else was it? Sorry, I missed it. Seven crowns. Um, rulership, dominion. There's, there's no other devil but the devil. There's no other prince of darkness but the prince. He's got complete and total rule over this world. Verse 5. And she, the lady from before, brought forth a man-child who was to rule over all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Curious. This woman who is with child, as she delivers her child, she delivers not a baby, but she delivers a full-grown newborn. A man-child. She delivers a fully-grown person who is to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, a symbol of authority, like a scepter, like a king's scepter. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So clearly this ruler is not an evil one. This, um, uh, well, we'll say ruler twice. This ruler is not a, a um, domineering one like the devil who's exercised his power to hurt people. This one has connection to God. Well, obviously, I'm supposed to draw the connection to the holy heavenly ruler of the earth versus the unholy dark ruler of the world, the devil. And the battle that's going to come between them. This is the devil on one side and this is Jesus on the other. But remember, that's just the first conclusion, the obvious conclusion I'm supposed to draw. In fact, I'm not even supposed to draw the conclusion. John's going to flat out tell me this as we go through the chapter. So therefore, from the knowledge, I have to make the application. Get the connection and go to the next level. You've got the devil going after the new Jesus. And if that's Jesus, then the woman must be Mary. That's this right here. That's this connection. From there, I have to make the application, which is Jesus is like Mary giving birth to the church and the church being persecuted by the weapon of the devil, which is Rome. But we'll see that as we go through it. Verse number six. I feel like I skipped a verse. I skipped verse four. Well, I'm sorry, everybody. I knew I missed that part. Look at verse four. Back up a verse. And his tail, the tail of the dragon, drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. All right, that's my bad, y'all. It's kind of a critical verse here. Look at that verse four again. The dragon's tail pulled up, drew like he was drawn from the heavenly sky. All these stars, a third part of the sky. The third part is a phrase commonly used in this book, as we've seen before, to refer to the Roman Empire. So he draws the third part of the stars and casts them to the earth. This is the devil essentially pulling back its tail. If you're looking at the devil in the, in the stars like a constellation, its tail makes up all these stars. Its tail makes up a third of the stars and it's whipping its tail up and smacking it down to the ground. Right? You've seen animals do that. So it's taking its star and it's crashing down to the earth. So it's taking its instrument of, of violence and it's attacking the earth. Rome is the instrument of the devil being used to attack the earth. 
See, I, I make the obvious connection this is the devil. From there, I have to conclude without John telling me. Because John can't tell me, by the way, guys, this part is Rome. Because the Romans are reading this. They don't care if John tells you that the devil is evil. The Romans don't believe in the devil. But they believe in Rome, and they certainly don't want to hear Rome is this big evil creature that's trying to terrorize you, but they'll lose in the end. So he has to keep that part of it concealed. So he makes the obvious connection this is the devil, and then drops the subtle wordplay. A third part of his stars, his tail, came up and struck the earth. The third part. I've already read that and made the connection that's Rome. So you put those dots together and you make that connection. And something else, the dragon crouches in front of, kind of lies in wait, ready to pounce before the woman as she was ready to deliver her child, ready to specifically devour the child as soon as it was born. Again, make the first connection to Mary and Jesus. Did you know the rabbis? The rabbis, like they're a pop band. Did you know rabbis in the Old Testament had this, this tradition among them? They, they had this saying, and they would tell it to mothers before they were to give birth. They would say, every Jewish mother, before she gives birth, has the devil watching over her shoulder. They would say, the devil's always watching over the shoulder of a Jewish mother about to give birth because they want to see the delivery. They want to see, is this the one that was prophesied in the garden? That from the, from the seed of woman would come the deliverer of humanity and the destroyer of the devil. And so the rabbis would always say, the devil's over your shoulder, you're about to give birth. That's their, that's their saying. The devil's wanting to see the child you would give birth to to see if that child is his arch nemesis, in other words. Although C.S. Lewis would say, Mark, the devil's not the arch nemesis of Jesus. Michael is the arch nemesis of the devil. But anyway, the point is, the devil would crouch over to see his enemy, Jesus, if that's going to be who it was. Well, now this is the one. You see the star in the shape of the woman giving birth, and the devil is crouched, ready to see, is this the one? Because I'm going to devour it if it is. And as you see in the verse we already covered, verse 5, she gives birth to this one who would rule the nations with his iron rod. And her child is caught up unto God and to his throne. Keep, think of it like this. In the way that it's laid out in this chapter, you first are introduced to this woman who is with child and then to the enemy who takes control with this seven horns and, or ten horns and seven um, whatever. This, this, this powerful being with, with limited authority, right? He, this, this being who has dominion over the world, right? And he's introduced in that way. But then after that, you get the pregnant Mary, the devil who rules the world, and then Mary gives birth. In that order, after you introduce the devil as the ruler of the world, you're introduced to the born Jesus who is described to you in this chapter as the one with the scepter of rule. Well, now wait a minute. He's going to rule the world? Is that what it says? Who will rule all nations with this iron rod. The devil's ruling all nations. Jesus is taking authority back from the devil. Before Jesus came along, you were the devil's subject. The devil was your king because you chose to submit to him in sin. And so we all became subservient to the devil. We became his subjects. And he's not one just to give us up. But then was born this one who delivered us. Like the second Moses from the second Pharaoh. So this one who delivered us from sin. And who freed us from this tyranny of the devil. Well listen, that's why the devil's coming after us. And that's why the devil hates Jesus. Because Jesus took from him us. We're no longer his property, we're Jesus' property. So I think it's very fitting the description of Jesus of all the ways to describe him is as another ruler. One who will have limitless authority and power as opposed to the devil. Now, he's coming after. And what happens? Verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there 
1,203 uh, score days. With the dragon on the hunt, the dragon looking to attack and consume and destroy this newborn ruler competitor of his, Mary escapes. If, if, if that's the connection, I think it's the obvious one. If you remember your story, she escapes from Herod, who goes to try to kill baby Jesus. Baby Jesus. She fled, but she didn't flee into the wilderness. Mind you, that's what it says. She fled into Egypt. This is just the um, apocalyptic rendition of it. Fled into Egypt, Matthew 2.13. Jesus went to the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, which is three and a half years, 1,203 score days. But you, you might be thinking, but Jesus wasn't hiding from the devil in the wilderness. Uh, he was tempted by the devil, but he wasn't hiding from the devil, like Mary is in this text described as hiding from the devil, except Mary is not described as hiding from the devil in this text. Uh, I say that because I read a lot of people who are, make that connection, this assumption. Mary flees to hide from the devil while the devil is looking for her newborn baby, but it doesn't say she hides. It says she leaves her present location to go somewhere else, to go somewhere she can be taken care of by God, but that's not hiding. That's just escaping to a shelter offered her by God. Draw that first connection. Get it right. And then from there, make your application. The devil is not coming after the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us the church. In the same way Mary gave us Jesus, Jesus gave us the church. In the same way the devil went after Jesus, the devil is going after the church through the Roman Empire. The church is not fleeing and hiding from Rome. The church is going to the shelter of God. Going to the spiritual wilderness where God can comfort her and feed us, her his kingdom, his bride, for a duration of time. So I'm, I hope I'm making sense with that. You may not even agree at all. That's just the way that I see it. I just think you're shortchanging the, the chapter. If you only get out of this, it's a retelling of Mary giving birth to Jesus and running from the devil. That, that's it's too surface level. There must be an application, because there isn't every other chapter of this book. And so I feel like the application is the church, you know, being persecuted by the Roman Empire and fleeing into the shelter of God. Now look at verse 7. And there was war in heaven. And if you're a, you know, a premillennialist or if you're someone who teaches this book, you know, kind of willy-nilly, you take pieces here and there to teach some other random crazy thing. A lot of people like to just to take this verse and they kind of separate it from the context and they hold it up and they say, there's going to be a war in heaven someday. Or they'll say, and there was a great war in heaven long ago. They'll say all these things and they lose the entire context of the chapter. There was a woman in heaven. She was about to give birth to a baby. There was a dragon in heaven. He was about to eat the baby. There was a war in heaven. These are all the same circumstances. Now, if you change that word heaven, as you very appropriately can do, to the sky, it becomes a lot more crystal clear. There was in the night sky a constellation of a woman. Come to life by the inspiration of God. About to give birth to a baby. There was in the constellation a red dragon about to consume the baby. And there was in the constellations a fight. John is seeing a play. Okay? Now in this play he may be drawing from history as he does in the first part of the chapter. Mary and Jesus fleeing to the wilderness. Or to Egypt. But drawing from history is not the same as prophesying a future battle or talking about it as though it was a literal battle that happened. I do not believe, and I find no evidence for, before the devil was cast out of heaven, which I think is 99.9% .9 the only conclusion you can draw. The other point one is just the thing I haven't thought of yet. So let's all assume the devil was cast out of heaven long ago. I do not believe there was a grand battle 
where General Michael the Archangel was leading his army of angels and General Devil was leading his army of fallen angels and there was a clash and the devil lost or the devil, because he lost, he had to get kicked out of the house. No! There's no Bible for that. It doesn't even make sense in the, the precedent of the Bible, the things that it tells you about God and the way he does his business. But that's what people get because they take a verse like this out of context. All John is saying is, here's another thing I saw in the stars. Verse 7. I saw a war in heaven with Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon fought against his... Um, oh, sorry, fought against the dragon and the dragon fought with his angels. So, a battle, a war. God does not fight Satan. If you want to make that connection, you can say God doesn't need to fight Satan. God sends an angel to fight Satan. And that's, that's the connection, as I was mentioning uh, a minute ago, C.S. Lewis, the famous uh, writer, not inspired, but pretty good, makes the astute observation that the devil is not the enemy of Jesus, that they're not arch nemesis. Jesus is above the devil. He is the king of the angels. The devil's a fallen angel. If anybody is the equivalent uh, arch nemesis of the devil, it'd be like Michael the archangel. And probably from this verse is where he got that idea. And if not from there, then from Jude verse 9, uh, where Jude says it was the devil who rebuked Satan. Um, so and threw him out like jazz and fresh prints out of heaven so uh, there's a lot you can unpack from this let's look at verse number eight just keep going the devil and michael and their forces fight in this constellation like scene and the devil and his forces prevailed not in this fight neither was their place found anymore for them in the sky you see how people could very easily by taking this out of context see this as this is talking about when the devil is thrown out of heaven. Well, maybe, maybe that's this right here. Maybe he wants you to make the obvious connection, but then what's the application? What's the point? What's the real thing you're supposed to get out of that? It's not just, if that is what it is, it's not just, oh, this is just John reciting the devil getting thrown out of heaven. There must be a grander point to that. So let's see what that might be. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Well, I thought the devil was cast to, to hell. Well, as a matter of fact, the devil will be cast to hell. If you read Matthew 25 up close with the magnifying glass, what the master says is, uh, depart from me to the place prepared for the devil and his angels. I, I always took it to mean the devil is living and active and working and then at judgment day, all will be judged. And I take all to mean all. And all of us will be cast. Oh, well, not, oh, not all of us. The condemned will be cast to the place of eternal fire, which has also been prepared for the devil and his angels. But that's, that's, getting, that's getting to inside baseball. Let's not miss the point of verse 9. Again, verse, verse 9. The great dragon was cast out of the stars. That's the play he's watching. He's thrown off stage. Who is the one cast out? The old serpent. Old serpent. Dracon, same word. Called the devil, the word means the, the false accuser. And Satan, the word means adversary. So here's the one who is the liar who's always trying to get you into trouble. Who is the constant antagonist to you as the enemy of, of all things holy. The adversary, the false accuser, the old serpent. Which I think is a description of his appearance. That certainly is in the book of um, Genesis. Who deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. What we're going to see as we go through this is his being cast to the earth is told for us to describe for us why the devil is so active in the world. Why the devil doesn't leave us alone? Well, because he's not present and welcome in the sky 
anymore. He lost the battle. And he's thrown down, a symbol of defeat. He's, you know, knocked down. But then down, he's not out. Down, he's, he's vengeful. Down, he is thrashing like a loser who just doesn't want to give up the fight. And he's trying to take all of us with him. Tie this back in with the beginning of the chapter. The, the devil is depicted as, as this powerful ruler. He's got the horns. He's got the crowns. He's got the power. And then along comes this other one who was born, who also has a rod of scept- a scepter, a rod of iron, who also has power. And that sparks a battle to see who is going to have the power, who is going to have the dominion, over what? Over you and me. What is this war we're talking about? It is not some grand, heavenly, pre-creation battle. What we're learning about, which is very relevant to Revelation, is the war for your soul. What is this book about? Revelation 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Do not give up the battle with the devil. Because as you read right here, the devil has already been cast down. He has already been defeated. He's already been picked up and slammed like a wrestling match. He's already been completely taken out. Why would you side with a loser? He has already lost. There was a war in the stars. And the bad guy lost. What? Don't be on team bad guy. That's team loser. Look at verse 10. And with his defeat, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. You see who we're talking about? He makes it clear, the first connection, the devil and Christ. Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. You might ask, where's the Roman Empire in all of this? Well, if it is the case that this starry woman constellation, you're supposed to see that and think Mary giving birth to Jesus attacked by Satan. If it's the case that that is representational of Jesus giving birth in a quasi sense to the church, then Rome is the type of the devil who is attacking the church. And what you're reading here is a promise, a prophetic promise, that just as the devil defeated, so too will Rome be defeated. Now, when will the devil ultimately be defeated? At the final day. So even if Rome is not defeated until the final day, the Roman Empire will still be defeated. But we know history. The empire was defeated before that. So that's the promise of the book of Revelation. Just as much as you can take it to the bank that God will defeat the devil and has, he will defeat the Roman Empire and will. That's the point. We miss that when we try to focus on the spectacle, the wonder, the, the, the garnish that is just there to muddy up the message enough for the Romans not to understand what they're reading. And too many people fixate on that. And they miss the point behind it. They focus on this and not the this. Verse 11. And they overcame him, the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto death. This is an amazing verse. In fact, it's probably my favorite verse in the chapter, if not one of my favorite verses in the whole darn book, and especially because it comes, because it comes right after the verses that everybody focuses on in chapter 12. Everyone talks about the spectacle, the spectacle verses in this chapter. The woman and the stars, the devil and all that, the, the dragon. But look at the... The beautiful way this verse is uh, phrased. They overcame. Now that's talking about us. That's talking about the children of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. We overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb. What was our weapon? 
that we used in this war to subdue the great enemy. The weapon we used was not a sword, unless you mean the sword of the spirit, the sword, but that's not what he says. It was not a sword, it was not a gun, it was not a bayonet, it was not a grenade. The weapon we used to defeat the devil was a gift given to us by someone else. It was not the blood of Matthew Martin. It was the blood of the Lamb. We defeated the devil in battle with blood. We didn't throw it at him. We covered ourselves in blood. And like, like covering yourself in armor that cannot be penetrated, we covered ourselves in the blood of the Lamb so that the devil can do nothing to us. He can attack, he can throw his stones, he can try to stab, he can scream, he can scratch, he can claw. But he cannot penetrate that shell of armor that is called the blood of the Lamb. That's our weapon against him. With that, we defeat him. Because his only weapons against us are sin and death. And through Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, we've conquered sin and death. That's just the first part of it. Keep going, though. We defeated the devil by the word of our testimony. It says their testimony, but there is us. This is us we're talking about. People who overcome Satan. And we're all going to overcome Satan, aren't we? So he's talking about us then. We defeat the devil with the blood of the Lamb and with the word of our testimony. That word means the word of the martyrs. The word of the people who spoke the word under fear of death. Not fear, under the uh, potential for death, let's say. We defeat the devil by covering ourselves in the blood of the Lamb and by speaking the word of God. That's the way we defeat the devil. We don't go storming a, a castle. We don't go putting people to the guillotine. We don't go stabbing people in secret at night. What we do to win the war we are fighting as spiritual people who live in a physical body, in a physical world, belonging to a spiritual kingdom. What we do is we cover ourselves in the blood of the Lamb and we teach the gospel. Knowing that so teaching will probably end up in our death. Because the very people to whom we teach are sometimes specifically the ones trying to kill us. There was, there was no... Uh, a prejudice amongst the church. They didn't say, well, I'll preach to these people because they're nice. They gave me bread and sugar when I moved into my neighborhood. But I'm not going to preach to these people. They might rat me out to the Romans. Or they might be the Roman soldiers. I'm not going to preach to them. No, I'll go preach to them first. Because they might kill me. Because as you read at the end, they didn't love their lives. They loved his life. Because he gave it. I mean, if someone gives you a gift, you know, like it's your... It's your great-grandpappy, and he's 97, and this is his last Christmas. He keeps it up, it will be his last Christmas. This is his last Christmas, and he's old, and he gives you a, a whistle that he whittled. It's not worth 10 cents if you could put a value on it. But it means something to you, because three weeks later, great-grandpappy goes on to his reward. That was a gift he gave you. It means something. It's special, it's precious. You have been given a gift that is special and precious. It is the gift of Jesus' life. It means something. It puts so much, you put so much value on it that nothing can compare, including your own life. Why do I need my life? My life is crummy in comparison to his. I have his life now. I live in Jesus, right? Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians? That we are dead and our lives are hid with Christ in God. That's not Galatians. It doesn't matter. We, have, we live in Jesus. We don't need our life anymore. We have his life now. So I don't love my life because I have his to take the place of mine. They love not their lives, but they might kill you. They love not their lives unto death. Isn't that what your Bible says at the end of the verse? And that's how you defeat the devil. Because all he can do to you is give you sin and death. And he can't even give you sin. He can't even make you a sinner. He can just tempt you. So you cover yourselves in the blood. You preach the word. 
and you go singing to the cross, to your cross, following him. Therefore rejoice, verse 12, you heavens, and all ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. Rejoice, ye heavens. Rejoice, you who live beyond the sunset. Ring out the song of victory. Rejoice, you who have set your affections on things above. Colossians chapter 3. Hey, there it is. Colossians 3. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Uh, on the other hand, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Earth and sea, that's the whole world. That's everything. Woe to those against whom the devil has come down with his great wrath. Woe to those who are entangled in the briar patch of sin, as Peter describes it, 2 Peter 2. I have five minutes, 20 through 22. Satan is the taskmaster of the world. Satan is angry. You'd be angry too if you lost a battle the whole world saw because it, it happened in the stars. So he's lost his fight and he's trying to take everybody down with him. So you, he only has this short amount of time, this finite time to do his damage because eternity belongs to God. The devil belongs to the world. The world is passing away. So as long as he has this world under his control, he's going to take everybody down with him. And that was once us, but now we've escaped. And now we are this small little people who are in this very dark place that all belong to the devil, and we're just this tiny little people. And because Jesus tells us to shine our light, we're this tiny little group in this very dark place that's just radiating a light that says, come get us. And they're coming for us. And they sometimes will hurt, and they sometimes will kill. And so we have to constantly keep on our mind, victory comes at death. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been picked up and body slammed into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth her man-child. Now wait, who's the woman? In this part of the understanding, it's Mary, but the application is Jesus Christ. He persecutes Jesus Christ, but wait, I thought he was persecuting the church, not Jesus, but when you persecute the church, you are persecuting Jesus, right? Isn't that what he said to Saul of Tarsus? Uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul had never, to my knowledge, laid a finger on Jesus. But he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes it personal. Acts 9.4 So he's coming after the church, and he's using Rome to do it. Verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Time, times, half a time. That is a Daniel reference. It's also a Revelation reference to this, this period of time that's come up a lot recently, three and a half years. Time, year. Times, two years. Half a time, a year, three years and a half. Which, in your Christian's mind, you think of the ministry of Jesus, maybe. So maybe it's a reference to, as long as you're ministering, as long as you're following in Jesus' footsteps, the devil will be coming after you. Or maybe it's a reference to the devil's ministry of evil. As long as he's doing his work, you're going to be suffering and hurting. However you want to make that connection, the point is, he's coming after you. And while he's coming after you, what does the text say in verse number 14? God is taking care of you. He's not leaving you to twist in the wind. The devil's coming after, and the woman is given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Mount up with wings as an eagle, Isaiah chapter 40. Run and never be weary. Walk and never faint. Right? Isn't that how the song goes? And the text? So she is able to be protected. Not spared, necessarily, but protected. Some might die, but overall, the kingdom will stand. Verse 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Well, this is just fantastical, you know, 
imagery. He's trying and trying to kill. He's using every arsenal as, as his, at his disposal. Excuse me. Opens his mouth and outforms or spews a flood. Um, you know, what connection you draw to that? You, you might think of the Noahic flood, but that was God created that flood, not the devil. On the other hand, God created the flood because the devil was so evil. But in this case, I just think it's, it's interesting. In fact, to tie back with what Galen said earlier, that this dragon spews not fire out of its mouth, but water, a flood. I don't know if there's any symbol, uh, symbolic meaning behind that, but the devil tries, in other words. I got nothing, is what I'm trying to say to you. I don't know. He spits water instead of fire. He's not that effective as a dragon. Hey, maybe that's the point. He's a really crappy dragon. Pardon my language. Verse 16. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had cast out of his mouth. The earth opened its metaphoric pores and just soaked up. In other words, whatever the devil tried to do, God had a counterattack. As the woman is fleeing from the devil, the devil is giving chase, and as the devil tries to destroy, God is there. Like, let's, we, we always are going to quibble. We're always going to misunderstand. We're always going to question, what does this part mean? I just want everybody to zoom out for a second and realize we can all understand the big picture. And the big picture here is the devil is coming after us, and whatever he does, God always has an answer. He keeps boxing him in. You try this, I'll do that. You do this, I'll try that. Whatever you try, I'm going to have an answer so that you cannot completely eradicate my kingdom on earth, is his point, I think. 17. And the dragon was, the King James says, wroth. The word means angry, frustrated with the woman. And he went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I know, it's, it's muddied. You know, is the woman Christ or is the woman the church? It's, is the woman Mary and the woman Jesus? It's, it's muddied. Maybe intentionally so. I'm almost done. In fact, I think this is, yes, the last verse. The point, though, is... The devil is angry that he cannot accomplish what he wants to do. His one prevailing mission now is to destroy Christianity. Right now he's using Rome to attack the church in the first century, but he'll use whatever tools necessary to attack, attack us today. The point is I'm almost done. He is angry, he makes war, he fights, but he loses because he's fighting against people who keep the commandments of God. He will take all kinds of people. I'm almost done. He'll take all kinds of people who, who will not keep the commandments of God. He will take any of you right now if you disobey God. But as long as you stay faithful to God, He cannot touch you. you. You cannot go to hell unless you want to. It's as simple as that. So if you keep the commands of God and you have the testimony of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's not, that's not blasphemy. That's Christianity. As long as you stay faithful, you will never have anything to worry about. You slip up and you get eaten. All right, that's chapter 12. Sorry I, I ran a little long. Um, we'll pick up with chapter 13 next week, and it, it's, it's just as crazy.